Hi, my name is Martha. The Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah 9, 2 through 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep dark darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Steve. The New Testament reading is found in 1 Corinthians 13, 9 through 13 from the ESV. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The word of the Lord. Thank you for standing. My name is Terry, and the gospel reading is found in Luke 1, 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. <clears throat> Holy Spirit, we invite you to come once again and flood our hearts and fill our lives. Open our eyes, Lord, that we would see Jesus today. And open our ears, Lord, that we would hear your voice resonating to us, speaking to us. And Lord, give us the kind of hearts that are ready to receive your word, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Amen. 
Well, it's the fourth Sunday of Advent, and it is the final week of this little series we've been in called Great Expectations. And in week one, we talked about failed expectations. Expectations can be a wonderful thing. They can get you out of bed on Monday morning because someone's counting on you because you're counting on you. Um, But the tricky thing about expectations is eventually we fall short, and shame is usually what results when we fail expectations, either ours of ourselves or others of us. And so the question was, what do we do with failed expectations? And we talked about how Jesus, his arrival began to have this ripple effect for those around him. And and Zechariah begins to talk about how Jesus will remove shame. Elizabeth says that he's taken away our shame. Jesus is the one who removes the shame of failing, of falling short. Jesus, the one who not only removes it, but who then carries the weight of our expectations, that all of our hope can be in him. And then last week, we talked about shattered expectations. What happens when just life derails? And we looked at two of the women in Jesus' genealogy, Rahab and Ruth, whose very lives were not the kind of lives that maybe they imagined as young girls. And yet, somehow, the Lord met them in unlikely places, in unlikely ways, to show them his kindness. Well, this morning, we're talking about delayed expectations, and there's the chance that you've been listening to these, uh, these uh, sermons or these scriptures, and you've been thinking about it, and you're saying, well, Glenn, that's nice, and I want to believe that. I want to believe that my hope is in the Lord. I, in fact, I do believe that, that my hope is in the Lord, and I want to believe that he can redeem, that he can show, his kindness can show up in unexpected ways. I want to believe that. In fact, Glenn, I do believe that, but the trouble is... I'm just getting tired of waiting, and I don't really see it. It's kind of like kids in the car on a, on a road trip. You know, you're 10 minutes out of town, and it's like, are we there yet? You're like, no, we just stopped at Starbucks for mom and dad, you know, so that we can be fueled up for more are we there yet for the next 10 hours, right? The one and only time I hiked Pikes Peak, the one and only time. I was with a group of young people who were all more fit and um, svelte than I, and uh, I was told that you would know you're near the end when you reach the 16 golden stairs. Now, silly me, I thought the 16 golden stairs were actual stairs, and that this would be a welcome sight because someone had done the job of paving concrete steps to the very top of the peaks. Silly me. Because once we got there, I discovered they were really like switchbacks, and that we were nowhere near the end. There's something exhausting about the feeling of thinking you've reached the summit, and then realizing, just kidding, you've got quite a bit more. And I wonder if this is what it might have felt like. We're familiar with Mary's song, The Magnificat. Listen to it again this morning, Luke 1, verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now listen to these themes that Mary sings about. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. 
He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. If someone were to map out the great themes in Mary's song, you'd say, well, at its heart is the theme that God will bring down the oppressor and lift up the oppressed. This is, I, I, I once said a few years ago in a sermon that the Magnificat is less this beautiful, uh, you know, um, um, classical piece and more like Rage Against the Machine. Because this is a song of revolution. This is, this is Mary saying that the ones who occupy the thrones now will not occupy the thrones forever. That they will be brought down. This is a song of revolt. This is a song that that protests against everything that is wrong with the world and says, look, the Lord has done it. The mighty are being brought down. This, I, I don't see this as sweet little Mary singing a beautiful uh, operetto. This is Mary saying, down with the establishment. <laughs> this isn't, the, the people that are ruling are oppressive. And the humble, the oppressed shall be lifted up. What joy Mary must have felt in that moment, thinking it's happened at last. And if you've picked up on some of the themes from the the, the prophets, Isaiah, he spoke about themes like this. He spoke about the meek and the lowly being lifted up. And yet, I have to wonder what Mary thought about these words just a few decades later. The Gospel of John gives us Mary at the end of Jesus' earthly life. John 19, 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. This is a very different scene. This is not young Mary rejoicing that God has come at last. This is Mary weeping at the foot of the cross. And you have to wonder, did Mary know that this is how it would end. Maybe the song, Mary, Did You Know, would be more profound if it wasn't simply about Bethlehem, but was actually about Golgotha. Mary, did you know, yes, I knew that he was the son of God. Yes, I knew that he was going to deliver me. But did I know it would end like this? No. Did I know it would end with me kneeling at the foot of a Roman cross, watching my son die like a traitorous criminal? Did I know it would end like that? Did Mary have any idea that when she sang that the lowly would be lifted up, she didn't think it meant being lifted up on a cross? That when the humble and the oppressor were brought down, it didn't look like they were being brought down when soldiers mocked her son. See, Bethlehem is covered with the shadow of Calvary. And here's Mary's song of joy that would one day give way to Mary's tears, Mary's lament. 
Mary's loneliness, the sword that would pierce her own soul, that Simeon had said would come. But could she have imagined it like this? Now all of a sudden we find ourselves relating a little bit to Mary. Because it's, it's difficult for some of us to have all the cheeries, cheery feelings of Christmas when we're keenly aware of pain. Maybe pain in your personal life, marriages, relationships, friendships. Maybe pain in the hearts of those around you. Maybe pain in the world specifically. And you're thinking, well, it's very nice for me to say, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Oh, it's so wonderful. It's so great. But actually look out there. And one only needs to look at Bethlehem current day to see that we're a long way from peace on earth. So where is this thing that Mary sang about? Maybe it's a reminder that we stand between two advents. It's a reminder that we stand between two arrivals. Mary caught a glimpse of it breaking in, but she never got to see. and We haven't seen yet the culmination of it, the completion of it. What happens when the thing that you're waiting for arrives but arrives in two stages. That's, not, that's what no Jew was expecting. They thought when Yahweh came at last, he was going to come and fix it all. Instead, he came, and then it was going to be this continued waiting. This arrival of God would be split in two advents. Nobody saw that coming. The arrival of God, Yahweh coming to us, God is coming to us, the coming of God Split in two arrivals, the birth, life, death, resurrection of Jesus, and then the return and reign. Nobody saw that coming. But here we are. Here we are living in that. And so I thought it would be appropriate for us as we finish this series and step toward Christmas to acknowledge the, maybe the disparity that some of us feel. I talk to people sometimes and and in a very honest or candid moment of grief, someone will say to me, Glenn, I know Jesus is on the throne. I know the cliche. But man, it sure doesn't seem like it. When will Jesus rule, not just by right, but in reality? When will he be the ruler of the earth? He rules the world with truth and grace. We're, we're going to sing that carol in a few days. He rules the world with truth and grace. Yes, yes, I do believe he rules the world. But when will his will really arrive? When will it be on earth as it is in heaven? When will it fully conform? We know from the weeks that we've already been through that we've talked about, this is coming in his, at his return. And so really the more poignant question is what do we do <laughs> As we wait, what do we do as we wait? What do we do in between two advents, the two arrivals of God? First Corinthians 13, we heard the text read this morning. I'll just skip down here to verse 13. This whole letter is about Paul talking to this, this new community in Corinth, and 
He's giving them a hope that is more than spiritual. And he's talking to them about how the body matters, how matter matters. And in in chapter 15, he'll talk to them about a bodily resurrection that's coming when Jesus returns. But before he gets to that, at the end of chapter 13, he says, Now faith, hope, and love remain these three, but the greatest of these is love. What are we left with as we wait? Faith, hope, and love. There's obviously so much that we can say about each of those three things, faith, hope, and love. But I want to just offer three reflections on each of those words. The first is this, faith. Faith teaches us to say, there's more than I can see. There's more than I can see. Faith is what Mary demonstrates when the angel tells her what's going to happen, and she says, how can this be? And then she says, be it unto me. Faith is accepting that there's something beyond what I can see and prove and guarantee. There's more to this reality. There's another way to know truth than just the empirical way of knowing truth. That faith is actually a way of knowing. To put it in perhaps philosophical words. Some of you appreciate that. Epistemology and whatnot, right? How do we know? Faith is another way of knowing, of saying there's more than what I see. It's like the man who says to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. It's a way of saying, and we talked about this in in week one. John's revelation at the end of this New Testament, the end of the Bible here, John's picture is a way of saying, look, all you see is Christians being slaughtered. All you see is an oppressive, beastly regime ruling the world. But I want you to know there is another ruler of the whole world. He's the lion who reigns by being the lamb who is slain. The lion who reigns not by shedding blood, but by absorbing the violence and the death. The lamb who reigns by being the lamb, uh, the lion who reigns by being the lamb who was slain. Faith is a way of saying, I, I believe there's more than I can see. Faith teaches us to say this. Hope teaches us to say that this is not the end. This is not the end. There's something beyond this. We talk a lot about this here at New Life Downtown of the hope that points us to a different horizon, right? That if all we see is our human horizon of life on this earth, we'd say, well, I I don't know if this is good or bad. But hope says that horizon of human life on earth, that death is not the end. There's actually a horizon beyond it. Sometimes you can't see it because the fog is too heavy. But there's another horizon. See it. This is not the end. It's very interesting, you know, John, in his gospel, has Jesus on the cross say these famous words, it is finished, right? And so a lot of Christians say, well, it's finished, it's, it's, it's all happened, therefore, if anything doesn't conform to the will of God here and now, it's only because I don't have enough faith. Have you heard teaching like that? Jesus says it is finished. If you don't have the full victory of God in your life, it's just because you don't have enough faith. It's not Jesus' fault. He's done it all. Right? What they fail to notice is John, in his vision in the book of Revelation, 
Revelation 21 says, Behold, I am creating a new heavens and a new earth. Every tear will be wiped away. Death will be no more. And then God announces, I am the Alpha and Omega. Behold, I'm making all things new. It is done. And the question is, what is the difference between it is finished and it is done? What is the difference between it is finished and it is done? The Greek there for it is finished is it's completed. I've reached the finish line. It's Jesus saying, I've carried the ball across the goal line, something the Broncos haven't been able to do, but I have reached the end. I've, I've finished it. I've completed it. And John in the book of Revelation, when God says it is done, is the word that means it's coming to pass. It's the difference between completion and coming to pass. Completion and coming to pass. Hope, hope says, yes, it was finished at the cross, but it's not yet come to pass. And so when we see things in this life that don't yet look like the will of God, we can know, don't worry, one day what has been completed will come to pass. What has been purchased will be given. What has been accomplished will now be established. That is the hope that we have. The in-between. So you might say hope teaches us to live in between the it is finished and the it is done. The completion and the coming to pass. But Paul says faith, hope, and love remain, but the greatest of these is love. Why? Because love teaches us to say that the future has begun. Love teaches us to say that the future has begun. Something about this thing that God is bringing is actually available for you here and now. N.T. Wright does this amazing illustration of salvation as a kind of inheritance. And all analogies of salvation are imperfect. Every one of them, from adoption to courtroom. I mean, it's all imperfect, okay? So let's just roll with another imperfect illustration. Imagine that your dream was someday to retire in France. Maybe for some of you that is your dream. For others of you, you're like, no way. But just pretend, okay? And salvation is like someone saying to you, you know what? You've been given the inheritance um, by someone that you, 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 you didn't really know. But this person has, has called you their son and their daughter, and they've left you the inheritance. And the inheritance is there's a massive estate in the south of France. And it's yours right by the French Riviera. It's yours. This whole estate is yours. This is your inheritance. And you're like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. And they're like, but I should tell you, this is not a condition of the inheritance, This is not a condition of the inheritance, but I should tell you that in France, they speak French. (laughs) And you're saying, okay. And, And because this is your inheritance, I just thought you should know that you should probably learn French now, because that's where you're going. And N.C. Wright says that's a little bit like being given the inheritance of the kingdom. Saying the kingdom of God is yours. It's come to you, not by any doing of your own. It's come by the grace of God. It's come because of Jesus. It's yours. It's yours. But I should tell you, the language of the kingdom of God is love. And so begin to learn this language now. 
before you get there. Could it be that Paul says the greatest of these is love because one day there's not going to be a need for faith. We sang it in the hymn, the hymn that Aaron taught us this morning. Faith will become sight. All is love. One day everything we've, we've had faith in we'll, we'll see and behold. We will behold him. Everything that we've been hoping for, that thing that's been on the horizon, sometimes obscured by the mist of life, that thing that's there, we'll see it. We'll have it. We'll taste it. And so what's left? <laughs> what's left except love? Not a, a, a sort of goosebumpy kind of feeling, but love as in the self-sacrificial love of God. You want to know how to live in the in-between? Start practicing the language of Christ-like love. Start practicing it. Start anticipating it. Start living now as it will be then. Some of you have heard me use this illustration before. I, I, I'm from Malaysia. I grew up in Malaysia. I spent 14 years of my life there, the first 10, and then uh, the four years of high school there. A bit of a longer story for another day. But I've made several trips back and forth, as you can imagine, and, and, and actually I think somewhere in the ballpark of 25, 26 times I've crossed the Pacific. It's a time difference of about 15 hours. I haven't made the trip, though, in about five years, and the last time I made the trip, I tried to actually do this, which is starting to live according to the time zone to which you're going. So it's amazing because when you think about it, it's like 7 o'clock at night is really 10 a.m. And so if you get on the flight and you're like, okay, everybody's ready to go to sleep, I'm ready for breakfast. Like, I've, I need to eat breakfast. Bacon and eggs, anybody? And like, we will be dimming the cabin lights. I'm like, no, no, I want breakfast. I want to start living now as it will be then. I want to start living according to the time zone that I'm going to. What do we do as we're waiting the arrival, the return of Christ? What do we do as we live between these arrivals? Yes, we know faith. Yes, we know hope. But start living now as it will be then. The act of Christ-like love is an act of protest against the darkness. The act of radical forgiveness, the act of welcoming the stranger, the act of hospitality, the act of kindness, the act of overriding fear with self-giving love, these are ways that we begin to live in the future now. These are ways that we begin to say, yeah, it's midnight in the world, but it's morning where I'm going. <laughs> Yeah, it's dark in the world. It's dark. It's dark. It's the dead of night. But I'm a child of the new day. I belong to the future. And so everybody else is living like the darkness. I'm going to have breakfast. I'm going to live like it's morning. People will say, well, why, how could you love like that? That's foolish. That's what they said to Jesus, isn't it? Jesus, why would you do this? This is not safe. This is crazy. This is, whoa, whoa, Jesus, calm down with the whole loving your enemies thing. Not a wise strategy. 
And Jesus says, you don't understand. I've seen the future. I know there's a love that cannot be conquered by death. I know there's a morning that will not be swallowed up by the night. I know there's a death that will give way to resurrection. How do you live now like it will be then? Start practicing the radical, self-giving love of Christ.